And take your Bibles, turn to two places, Deuteronomy chapter number 1 and Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14 and Deuteronomy chapter number 1. Lord willing, tonight we'll give you the third and final message in the series we've been doing on Wednesday nights on the delusions of disobedience. I don't have the time tonight to repeat the first two messages. They are on our uh, uh, church's YouTube channel. They can go back and look for them on our Facebook page or on our website. Uh, we do have those other messages up there. Uh, tonight I can't go back and repeat all of that. And for those of you that didn't hear them, um, I will try to take about two seconds to bring you up to speed here tonight with our text out of Deuteronomy chapter number one. If you would stand with me, please. We will jump right into the message. We do have some baptisms and uh, we're grateful for a good number that has started the principles of growth. We got some started tonight, first class. And if you're interested in principles of growth, discipleship, or you don't even know what I'm talking about, but you're interested in a 12-week discipleship on Wednesday night, if you'd get with Brother Leader, we would love to have you sign up for that. And we're just excited about all the new people starting tonight. But in Deuteronomy chapter number 1, for the sake of time, we're going to just look at verse number 26 and verse number 27. But before I read the verses, let me just remind you of where we are. We are in a place here called Kadesh. Barnea, according to verse number 19. The children of Israel have been brought out of the land of Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea. They've been brought through the wilderness. And they're now right on the brink of the Jordan River. And God's plan was for them to cross over Jordan, go into the promised land, Canaan land. That's what God's plan was all the way from the burning bush. And that's where we find them in Numbers chapter number 14. This in Deuteronomy 1 is kind of a recap uh, but we want to notice what happens in verse number 26. They got to Kadesh Barnea and they said, we don't want to go across. We don't want to go across. We want to turn around and go back to Egypt. Worst thing that you could ever do confronted with the will of God is to go in the opposite direction. That's exactly what they tried to do. And look what the Bible says in Deuteronomy 1 verse 26. Notwithstanding, ye would not go up, but rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. That was, that was how God described it, rebellion. He didn't call it hesitation. He didn't call it confusion. He didn't call it a misunderstanding. He didn't call it a lack of information. He called it rebellion. I brought you to this point. My desire, my plan is to take you over the Jordan River into Canaan land, the promised land, flowing milk and honey. They got there and they locked down the brakes and they said, we don't want to go over. There's the disobedience that we're talking about. Look at verse 27. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us. He hath brought us forth out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. That's why we've preached the title of the message, The Delusions of Disobedience. Because when you and I disobey, like they did right here, the devil begins to work in our minds and begins to work in our hearts and causes everything that we see to be opposite and backwards from the way it really is. The first message we looked at was the, the delusion uh, about reality. They were standing there looking at the Jordan River. They were looking at the promised land. God had the spies go over, bring back the grapes and the pomegranates and the figs. They tasted it. They was able to get an idea of what was on the other side. And yet, 
their assessment of the will of God was as backwards from what it really was as you could possibly get. And that is a result of disobedience. The second message was when we preached last week on delusional about relationships. Because they disobeyed, because they rebelled, it affected their relationship with everybody around them, starting with God Almighty. And we just read that. They said, the Lord hated us. How backwards can you get? Affected their relationship with God. Affected their relationship with the world. The enemy, they said the walls are going all the way up to heaven and we're grasshoppers in their sides. There's no way we can go over. There's, there's too many of them. Too much, there's too much for us. That was the opposite of what God said. Their relationship with the world was messed up. Relationship with God was messed up. Their relationship toward God's man got messed up. They began to murmur against Moses and against Aaron and they said, we're gonna pick us another captain and we're gonna go back to Egypt. Like it, had, like, like it was Moses' idea for them to go to, to, to Canaan. And then it affected their relationship with God's people. They tried to pick up stones and stone Joshua and Caleb, the only two of the 12 spies that was telling the truth. They wanted to stone them. And then it affected their relationship with their children. It affected every relationship in their life. It was, it was distorted, it was skewed, and it was messed up because of their act of disobedience. Tonight I want to preach the third message in this series on the delusions of disobedience and preach this thought right here, delusional about the repercussions. If you think for one second you can rebel against God and not pay a price, you are delusional. All right, let's pray. Lord, help us tonight as we turn our hearts and our minds to the scriptures. May, Lord, you take this sobering message and challenge our hearts, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for standing. You can be seated. I told you I'd do a quick recap, and that's about as all the time I've got to do tonight. But they were delusional about reality. They were delusional about the relationships. And now we see they were delusional about the repercussions of their rebellion. And that's what God called it, rebellion. Rebellion is when you know exactly what you're supposed to do, and you make your mind up you're not going to do it. Rebellion's a word we don't like to use because it's a pretty strong word. It's, 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 that's, what, uh, that's what Moses called them when he smote the rock, called them a bunch of rebels. Remember that? Remember that story where they didn't kill uh, Agag and they didn't destroy all the Amalekites? God said rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft. That's pretty strong language. And in our text tonight, we see in Deuteronomy 1.26, God said you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God. It's a serious, serious mistake to rebel against God. It's one thing to mess up. It's one thing to make a bad decision or make a bad choice. It's one thing to know, to know what God said about something and not take it serious. It's another thing when you harden your heart and you harden your neck and you, and you rebel against God. God takes that serious. As a matter of fact, I've, I've really dreaded, I told him this morning in the staff meeting, I said, I really dread to preach this message tonight because the repercussions of their disobedience was far more severe than they could have ever expected it to be. There are times in the Bible when God didn't deal with sin as harshly as he did at other times. In fact, in the book of Acts, the Bible even says in one place that at, at, at one time, 
God winked at some things. Let it, let it, let it slide, let it go. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. But I'm gonna tell you there's one thing God don't wink at and that is straight up rebellion. It's one thing if you do something you don't know any better. If it's, 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 it's something if you if you in a, in a moment of weakness you do something and immediately you you understand that you've done it and and you go to God and you confess it and forsake it. And the Bible says you'll find mercy, but God takes rebellion serious. In fact, it's so serious. God's response to this single act of rebellion right here is mind-boggling, and. It seemed like it was, it was more severe than they could ever imagine and that they couldn't fix it. It was so bad they couldn't fix it. Now, I'm not preaching tonight that you can't get right with God. What I'm saying is some decisions we make, you don't come back from. That's what I'm trying to say. They came literally to the brink, the edge of God's will and backed up and rebelled. In fact, we're still in, go back, you should be in Numbers 14 as well as Deuteronomy 1. You can just put a ribbon over there in Deuteronomy. We're gonna be in Numbers for a little bit tonight. In Numbers chapter number 14, I'm gonna tell you how serious this was. They sent those 12 spies into Canaan. They were there for 40 days, came back, and, and Joshua and Caleb, the two good spies, they said, we're well able to go over. The land's full of milk and honey. Here's the grapes, here's the figs, here are the pomegranates. Let's do this, let's go. And the other 10 spies said, no, we can't go. We can't go over there. There's walled cities, there's giants, there's, there's people over there that's bigger than us and, and, and greater than us and we're, we're grasshoppers in, in their side and we're grasshoppers in our own side. We cannot go over there. God was so angry with those 10 bad spies in Numbers 14 that God killed them right then, right there. Look at verse number 36. And the men which Moses sent to search the land who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, which were of the men that went to search the land, lived still. So of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, the one that said, we're well able, God spared them. The other 10, God killed them right then. Now listen to me just a second. I don't understand why God let those 10 live long enough to change the whole nation of Israel's mind. But he did. I've wondered all day, Brother Bittner, why didn't God kill them 10 when they come over there with an evil report? Why didn't God strike them dead right there in front of everybody and make an example out of them? So you got 12 spies too saying, let's do this. 10 are saying no. And they're, they're, they're able to sway the hearts. They're able to sway the will and the desire of the entire nation of Israel to rebel against God. And once they made their mind up, we are not gonna go in. Then God kills the 10 bad spies. And I got to thinking about this and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Many times the ones you listen to that keep you from doing God's will, they're not gonna be around later to watch you crash and burn. Yeah. 
And they're not going to be there to help you pick up the pieces either. The ones you listen to, the ones that sway you, the ones that turn your heart, turn your head, turn your, uh, your, your, your eyes away from God, they won't be there five years from now, 10 years from now to help you through the crisis. They'll become almost a non-entity. These 10 men, God killed them by the plague right here before this story even gets started good. But I want to give you four things tonight that was a result of the repercussions. I could have given you six or seven, but I'll just give you four tonight. I want you to notice number one, the repercussions of denial. Look in chapter 14, verse number 30. The Bible says, doubtless ye shall not come into the land concerning which I swear to make you dwell therein. And we know that it was God's will for them to go into Canaan. That's not even up for debate. God told Moses that at the burning bush. I want you to take them out of Egypt and I want you to take them into a land full of milk and honey. He brought them to the edge of the Canaan River, sent the 12 spies in, they came back. And you know what they said? The land is flowing with milk and honey, just like God said. It's just exactly like God described. They said, no, we don't want to go. We can't go in. We don't want to go in. We'd rather go back to Egypt. And they rebelled against God. And you know what God's first repercussion was? Okay, you can't go in. But you wanted us to go in. It was your plan for us to go in. It was your will for us to go in. You brought us out of Egypt and brought water out of the rocks and manna from heaven and gave us Moses as a leader and brought us across the Red Sea on dry ground. All of that so we could go into Canaan. Yeah, but guess what? Now you can't go. Let me tell you something tonight. I doubt very seriously that any Christian can completely understand the awfulness of hearing God say, I'm going to give you what you want. You shall not come in. There's nothing worse than when God grants you your carnal wishes. They got what they asked for and lost what they had. And you say, well, I, I, I don't think that's that big of a deal that he didn't let them go. They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go at first, but then they did. You know, it's funny how that many times you think you don't want something and then a couple days later, that's the only thing you do want. But sometimes God don't let you have it. We got young people that'll sit in youth conferences, they'll sit in chapel, they'll sit in Bible class and they'll sit in church services here at Calvary Baptist Church and they hear that God's will is for you to marry the right one, the right one, not a good one, not an okay one, not, not, not just somebody that is okay, but the one that God wants you to marry. And then you'll meet somebody and God will say, that ain't the one. Your parents will say, that ain't the one. And I can't emphasize this enough. If your parents ever one time say, that's not the one, that's not the one. It's not the one. I promise you, your parents don't want you living at their house the rest of your life. They don't want you living in their house, sleeping in their bed and eating their food 
for the rest of your life, but they would rather you do that than marry the wrong one. And if your parents tell you it's the wrong one, there ain't no point in even having getting any more counsel. You drop them like a hot potato. You say, we've already been dating for three years. Hey, you ain't married yet? Drop them like a hot potato and thank God. What's everybody going to think? They ain't going to think nearly as much about you as they are when you get divorced six months after you get married. I felt impressed to say that. Before I ever married that little girl right there, I had her parents and my parents blessing. If her parents should have said no, it had been off. If my parents should have said no, it had been off. If my pastor had said no, it had been off. And some of you would get married with everybody and their mama telling you it's the wrong one. And I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to throw this out while I'm already, I'm already out here. I might as well go ahead while I'm here. Listen to me very carefully. I don't care if you are a tithing member of this church. If I don't think you're marrying the right one, I'm not marrying you. You have to get somebody else to do it. I'm talking to our young people. I'm talking to my kids. Spencer, if you want to marry a girl and I don't think she's the right one, you have to find somebody else to hook, tie the knot. I ain't tying the knot. You say, well, you're, the, you're his pastor. I know who I am. But I ain't going to be privy to something that I don't feel is right. I don't care if it's one of our staff members, kids. I don't care who it is. My kids, his kids, your kids. If they come to me and they say, we want to get married. And if I say, you know what, I've prayed about it. i got a knot in my stomach. I don't think it's right. You've got to find somebody else to marry you. You say, well, we'll get mad and leave the church. Well, you'll probably do that anyway. But I ain't got to be a part of it. Is everybody, is everybody okay? I'm not going to sign off on something if I don't think it's right. He said, well, that hurts my feelings. It won't hurt your feelings nearly as bad as you marrying the wrong one. They, they, they couldn't, they, they, this is what we want. And then when they was told that they couldn't have it, then they wanted it. Well, it's too late now. Some things you can't come back from. I think about how many people sit in church and they hear the revivalist or they hear the visiting evangelist or they hear a pastor preach about this is what God wants for your life. And you sit there and say, but that's not what I want. That's going to complicate my life. I'm not prepared for that level of commitment. I'm not prepared for that level of, of dedication. I'm not prepared to let God and the word of God have that much say in my life. I don't mind giving God a little piece of the pie, but I want to keep the rest of it for myself, which is what they said. They said, if we go over there, our children will become prey. No. And here's what God said. Well, they're not going to become prey over there because they're going to become prey in the wilderness to you. That's what he said. Some of, the most, some of the most scary verses that I find in, in the scripture is when they said, they said, your children, which you said your children was going to, was going to uh, fall prey. And, and I'm, in, I'm in Numbers 14, look at it, verse 31. They said, your little ones, which you said should be a prey. Then will I bring in, they shall know the land which ye have despised. I'm telling you, he said, he said they're going to, in verse number 33, there it is, your children shall wander in the wilderness for 40 years and bear your whoredoms. 
Now that's strong. They're going to bear your whoredoms, not the whoredoms of the Canaanites. And it hit me. It hit me, Brother Bittner. The, the, only, the, the first person they encountered in Canaan was a harlot by the name of Rahab. And she'd been under conviction for 40 years. She wasn't a threat to their children. She got saved. Her and her family put down their scarlet thread, a thread at the window and God spared Rahab. The harlots in Canaan weren't the problem. The problem was the whoredoms in the heart of the children of Israel. When you're confronted with this decision to let everything go and go all in for God and you walk up to the edge and you turn around and back off, and you use your children as an excuse or you use your hobbies, your sports, your job, your money, your career, that's your, that's your reasoning, the day will come when you'll wake up and realize, well, that was a bad decision. I'm gonna go back now and I'm gonna do it. And you can't. Your kids are grown now. Too late. The repercussions of denial, when God gives you what you want, that is a serious repercussion of disobedience. Number two, the repercussions of dread. Boy, as I was reading these verses, look at what God told them. I don't really know how to, to put a positive spin on this. This is bad. Look at Numbers 14, verse 32. God said, but as for you, your carcasses, they shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness after the number of the days in which ye search the land, even 40 days, each day for a year. Shall ye bear your iniquities even 40 years and ye shall know my breach of promise. I, the Lord, have said, I will surely do it unto all this evil congregation that are gathered together against me. In this wilderness shall they be consumed and there they shall die. Repercussions of dread. Here's what I'm talking about. God told them at the beginning, you're going to wander for 40 years. There wasn't no getting up every morning thinking maybe this is the day that we can cross over and finally go to Canaan. No, they knew that they were never going to get to Canaan. And they knew that God was going to have them wander for a year, for every day. The spies were in the land 40 days, 40 years. And that's what they got to look forward to every morning when they get up is more wandering in the wilderness. Nothing to live for. Nothing to look forward to. And boy, that got, the more I read that, the more that got to eating at me. They had to wake up every morning knowing they would never have a second chance to cross the Jordan River and go into Canaan. And God said, you shall know my breach of promise in verse 34. That word breach of promise, I looked it up in the Hebrew, it literally means opposition, alienation, and enmity. You're going to wake up every day and all day long you're going to wander in the wilderness knowing that I'm against you because of your rebellion. Breach of promise, man, that's strong. They would never have a second chance. They knew it would be 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Now watch this. God said, every one of you, 
20 years old and older will not go in. Is that what he said? How would you like to have a kid that was 20 years and six months old and you had told them about Canaan and they had heard the man of God talk about Canaan, land full of milk and honey. And they had stood there on the bank of the Jordan River in Kadesh Barnea and got to sample one of those grapes, have a bite of one of those figs. And they come to you and say, what did he just say? He said, 20 years old and older cannot go in. The 21-year-olds couldn't go in. The 22-year-olds couldn't go in. Let's make it even worse. Mom and daddy had to come to the realization that not one of their kids over the age of 20 would live past 60. They were all going to die before the 40 years was up. Am I still in the book? And they're looking at their kids and realize their kids will never live to be an old man or an old woman. Because God said, everybody 20 years old and older is not going in. And nobody's going in until everybody 20 years old and older is died. That's what he said. How'd you like to wake up every morning? And that's what you've got to look forward to. We're talking about dread. There was no, there was no reason to even get up in the morning. There was nothing to look forward to. Let me give you the fourth, the third point, the repercussions of decay. Several times God used words, and words matter. In Numbers 14, verse 33, your children shall wander in the wilderness 40 years and bear your whoredoms until your carcasses be wasted in the wilderness. Is that what your Bible says? Look at verse 29. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. And all that were numbered of you according to your whole upward from 20 years old and upward which have murmured against me doubtless you shall not come into the land. The repercussions of decay. He didn't say until you die. He didn't say uh, until you cease to live. He basically said your carcasses. In other words, you're not going to live. You're just going to exist in the shell of a carcass until your carcass falls and is wasted in the wilderness. That's not an existence. That is a slow death. Jesus said, I come that you might have life, that you might have it more abundantly. That's why he wanted them to cross over Jordan. That's why he wanted them to go into Canaan so they could experience God's blessings. But in the wilderness, there are no blessings, comparatively speaking. They're just decaying. How many of our churches are filled with Christians that have no idea what it means to live victoriously and live in victory and live the abundant Christian life? They're just existing. They're a carcass with a pulse. God wanted to stress the pointless life that you would live for the next 40 years. No reason to live, no hope, no chance of ever seeing anything different or better. A life of mundane existence, no change, no victory, no joy. It was a waste of time. 40 years, a waste of time. 40 years. My goodness. It was a waste of talent. A waste of talent. I wonder how many of those people had talents. 
they would never be able to use for God in the wilderness that God intended for them to use in Canaan. And let me give you an example. Let me give you a prime example. And I don't know how many times I've looked at these verses, but the Lord showed me something today. Over there, over there when they were building the tabernacle, this is later, during the 40 years they built a tabernacle. Look at this. Bezalel and Aholab were the, were the craftsmen that built the, the furniture for the, this is in Exodus chapter number 31 if you want to read it when you get home. They great skill, cunning men. They could take the metal and they could take and make the, uh, the furniture for the tabernacle with it. And I thought about this today, Brother Adriel. How awesome it was what they built that was temporary and something that had to be moved around on sticks. I wonder what they could have built if they'd have crossed over Jordan. God would have let them build a temple probably and they would have been able to build some unbelievable spectacular stuff in Canaan. But what they did in the wilderness was just a small taste of what they could have done with their talents. I never thought about that like, like I thought about it. They had to build all that furniture that was mobile, that you could carry. The Kohathites had to carry it on their shoulders, and the Gershonites had to carry it on their shoulders. Levites had to break down that whole tabernacle and carry every bit of that furniture on their shoulders. I wonder what Bezalel and the whole lab could have built if they had to put, had to put it in a tent and make it portable. We won't know. We won't know. They were able to use their talents for the Lord, but nowhere near in the capacity that they probably could have. I'll tell you something else. It was a waste of time. It was a waste of talent. And the wilderness was a waste of treasure. You ready for this one? When they went to build the tabernacle, God said, take up an offering. And everybody brought gold and silver and brass, and they brought all their stuff. In fact, they brought so much, God said, stop, 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 stop. Don't bring no more. Moses said, we got enough. But they couldn't replenish what they gave. Are y'all still with me? I mean, they couldn't go to Walmart and get it. They couldn't, they, when they gave, they didn't have it anymore. But when they got over into Canaan, every time they fought a battle, God said, go spoil them and you can have all their gold and all their silver and all their brass. You can have all their stuff. Imagine what they could have given towards the work of God if they'd have been on the Canaan side of Jordan when the offering was taken up rather than on the wilderness side. Is everybody still with me? They would have had an abundance of stuff to give. In fact, they probably wouldn't have had to give anything. They could have just went and got it from somebody else and gave it. But in the wilderness, they gave what they stole and borrowed from the Egyptians when they left Egypt. Is this making any sense? You... You can never compare the life that you could have in Canaan to the life that they had in the wilderness. You'll never know. You'll never know. You will never know what you missed out on. You'll never know. Lastly, but not least, number four, the repercussions of defeat. Some of the saddest verses in Numbers 14. It starts in verse number 39. And the Moses told these sayings unto all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. They're, they're, they're heartbroken that their rebellion has produced this kind of a response from God. 
And they rose up early in the morning, verse 40, and got them up to the top of the mountain, saying, Lo, we be here, and will go up into the place which the Lord hath promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Wherefore now do you transgress the commandment of the Lord? It shall not prosper. Go not up, for the Lord is not among you, that ye be not smitten before your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because ye are turned away from the Lord. Therefore the Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up unto the hilltop. Nevertheless, the ark of the covenant of the Lord and Moses departed not out of the camp. Then the Amalekites came down, and the Canaanites which dwelt at that hill smote them and discomfited them even unto Hormah. Preacher, we're going to get right with God, and we're going to go ahead and go over. We're going to get right. We realize we messed up. We've sinned. We've cried. We've wept. We're sorry. We're going to go. We're going to do it. Moses said, no, don't. God's not with you. And they presumed to go up. And the Malachites came down. The Canaanites which dwelt in that hill and smote them and discomfited them. That means they destroyed them. They defeated them. God, God stood back and let them fight all by themselves. I'm talking about repercussions. You can't rebel. Are y'all listening to me tonight? You can't rebel against God and not pay the fiddler. You say, but I just, I don't think that that's the life for me. Well, tell me what life is for you. The wilderness? Defeat? Dread? Decay? Denial, or God's like, no. You got I can't think of anything more tragic. I'm back to the young people again. I can't think of anything more tragic than you sitting right down here, single, with your whole future in front of you. And you marry the wrong one, and two years from now, you won't be going to the marriage couple get away with us. After hearing us talk about the romantic escape every year, finally get married. And you can't go because it wouldn't be very romantic. And you're praying for an escape. But it's from the one that you married out of the will of God. Somebody here needs this tonight. All of us need this message about the delusions of disobedience. They thought they could do what they wanted to do, rebel against God, and then just next morning get up and hit a reset button. And God said, nope, you're delusional. That ain't happening. Heads bowed, eyes closed, musicians are coming. Now the truth of the matter is in the New Testament church dispensation, God operates a little bit differently. But I'm going to tell you something right now. You'd be very presumptive to think that what I preach tonight about the children of Israel doesn't apply to you. I've seen it too many times in my life. Our baptismal candidates are getting ready. You've got time to pray. Altars filling up. You might need to get an altar tonight and ask God for mercy. Maybe you've disobeyed, you've rebelled. Who knows what God might give you a second chance to make it right. Who knows but what God might spare you that finality of that 
judgment, those repercussions. But if I were you, I would crawl up to the throne of grace with as much humility as I could muster and ask God for grace and help. But if you're here tonight or you're listening to this message online and you keep testing God's patience, the battle of the wheels, God's got a plan for your life, but you have your own plan. I'm going to tell you something. You're going to miss out on a life you could have had. There ain't no telling what you're missing out on. There may be somebody here tonight say, Pastor Shifflin, I'm not sure if I died right now, I'd go to heaven. I hope I would, I think I would. But I don't know for sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. And I'd like for you to pray for me. Would you be honest enough with God tonight with heads bowed, eyes closed, to just quietly slip your hand up. Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. Pray for me. Anybody, anywhere? Anybody, anywhere? I see that hand. God bless you, ma'am. Anybody else? Preacher, pray for me. I'm not sure. We would love to take a Bible tonight and help you. It'd be our greatest honor to help you tonight. We wouldn't embarrass you for nothing in the world. We just want to help you. You've got a few minutes to pray. You've got a few minutes to talk to God. Folks are about to get baptized here in a minute, but there's folks.